Friends, we have been throughout the extended Easter season as we began last week, our first Easter in the pandemic time. We talked about 40 days of Easter, that time that was uh, an important religious time for God's people, ancient Israel and the Jewish people of Jesus' day, the time between uh, the uh, the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Pentecost. The church remembers the Jewish Feast of Pentecost more for the birthday of the church as Jesus uh, ascended to his Father's right hand in heaven to intercede for us, sent the Holy Spirit. With the coming of the Spirit, uh, 3,000 were added to the church during the Pentecost festival there in Jerusalem so long ago. And during this season, we have been looking at people from God's Word, men and women, under enormous pressure, and how by the grace of God, He was able to bring them through that. We've been encouraged that there's a a key and a similarity in each situation. Though the times of pressure have been different, there's been suffering, there's been unfairness, there's been physical disabilities and illnesses, there's been so much pain. And yet, God has been faithful. His promises, His presence, and His power have made all the difference. People under pressure have been able to rise above the circumstances that they find themselves in and find relief, find freedom, able to experience joy once again after so much seasons of sadness. Well, friends, it's been especially true for us because we've all experienced pressures. During the COVID time, Our two weeks of being locked up to flatten the curve are now 14 months and no sign of it ending. Every once in a while during a better time, our government will come before us and they'll give us a little bit of encouragement. They'll say, hang on, be patient. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. And then there's a bit of a spike in the numbers and they come back and the message has changed completely. It's one of fear one of warning that the light at the end of the tunnel, nope, that's a train coming at us and we have to lock you up and hunker down once again. The kids are home from school. You're off work. So many things come at you so quickly and it's caused a lot of pressure for people, a lot of anxiety. Though the health situation is one thing, it's been serious for a number of people for whom the virus causes severe complications. For most people, It's the pressure that's taken its toll. We've seen an enormous spike in drug overdoses, in suicides, especially the young people who who their lives seem pointless, aimless, without purpose, who spend far much too much time on the acidic poison of social media. They're experiencing a a pandemic of, of anxiety and depression. We're in a pressure cooker in society now. It doesn't take much for any issue to cause an explosion of violence and protests and and I believe a lot of it is just letting off the steam of the pressure people are under. Now the good news is God never meant for that to be the life you live. Jesus promises that where He takes up residence, where He lives in your heart, there will be freedom not restrictions, not lockups. You will be free. In Luke chapter 4, 
The gospel tells us that Jesus came to the synagogue. And the reading in the synagogue, the visiting teachers were able to take up the scroll. They would give them that reading for that Sabbath day. And then they would speak on it. And in God's perfect timing, the passage from the prophet Isaiah chapter 61 was prophetically speaking about Jesus himself. And so the one who fulfilled the passage took the scroll in his hand. And we see in verse 17 of Luke chapter 4, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. The anointed one means the Messiah because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I don't know about you, but for somebody living in a time where people have no freedom and they're feeling oppressed, The good news has never sounded so good. Jesus is the one who brings freedom. Now to get to that time of freedom, friends, the Lord, Jesus, the anointed one, will have to break some chains. I've called today's message the bondage breaker. The Lion of Judah has come and he can break our chains. I want to share this morning... From a passage, if you have your Bible with you at home or here in the sanctuary this morning, the few of us gathered here, we happy few, I'd like to invite you to open your Bible to the book of Acts, the story of the early church, the movement, the Acts of the Apostles filled with the Holy Spirit. It's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit through God's people, the early Christians. The book of Acts turned to chapter 16, which is the story of Paul's second missionary journey as he and Silas cross from Asia into Europe and they go to the city of Philippi. Before we get there, though, I want to talk to you about what Jesus has just mentioned for us in Isaiah, uh, in Luke chapter 4 from Isaiah chapter 61. Freedom. Jesus came to proclaim freedom. Not just freedom, but Jesus says if he sets you free, you will be Free indeed. That's total freedom. No strings attached. When God sets you free, you are truly free. Now that passage I just mentioned is found in the Gospel of John chapter 8. Jesus was in some hot and heavy discussions with the Jewish leaders. And he would talk to them that they've been slaves to sin. And they said, what what do you mean we're slaves? We've been free ever since we got set free from Egypt. We've been slaves to no one. And Jesus, as, and I'll pick it up a verse earlier, in verse 33 of John chapter 8, they answered him. These are the Jews, Jewish leaders that Jesus was debating with. We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. That little episode of 400 years in Egypt, they're, they're glossing over it. How can you say that we shall be set free? Harumph, harumph. I added that part myself. But you could tell they're harumphing. They're all upset. Verse 34, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. In King James, that's verily, verily. In Greek, it's actually two words, amen, 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 amen. Amen means literally, thus be it, so be it. And when they would say it twice at the beginning of a phrase, it meant, mark my words. What follows 
is the unvarnished absolute truth. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Amen, amen. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son, Jesus speaking of Himself, so if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Free indeed. For those to whom Jesus brings freedom, you're set free. You have liberty in Christ. You're not locked into that cycle of sin and death and and and, and sin that overcomes you besetting habits and sins you're you're actually set free you can die to your old self the flesh every day paul says i die daily that's to the sinful self and i live in freedom to god you have been set free now is it possible for christians to experience bondage well of course it is one of the things about having freedom is you have freedom to make a choice and you can choose to make poor choices. And if you make them over and over, they become besetting sins. They become habits that hold you back and limit you in what God can do in you and through you in your Christian life. They can keep you immature. And one of the besetting sins of the church throughout its history, and that's just one of them, has been legalism. Now, this is one of the things we saw last week that Paul was fighting against. Remember those super apostles that rolled into Corinth after Paul had planted the church and they tried to enslave the people who the council at Jerusalem had said, yeah, there's Jewish Christians, there's Gentile Christians, but to be a Christian, the Gentiles don't have to convert to Judaism. The men get circumcised, follow all the dietary laws, the laws of Moses, No, the law was given to reveal sin. It was helpless to deal with sin. It could reveal, but it couldn't deal with sin. So the Gentile people were not called to experience a new level of legalism. They were called to faith in Jesus. And so we see Paul writing to these churches and another one that was being troubled by legalists trying to enslave them to rule keeping instead of following God in faith and living with Christ in our hearts was the church in Galatia. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't get caught in that trap of comparing yourselves to other people and feeling awful good about yourself with sinful pride that you're not as sinful as they are. You're better than them. And it's just, it's, it's, it's poison. Legalism. Keep your eyes set not on others, but on Jesus. He's the one that we want to become like and follow him day by day. We've been set free We're not meant to live as slaves. In this passage, in Acts chapter 16, we see bonds broken again and again. It's a familiar story. It's one of my beloved flannel graph stories. When I was a boy, those great stories that could be communicated to children and teach important truths used the flannel graph. Oh, that's 
old, old technology. That's low tech. But the beautiful flannel graph and the big colorful characters that would stick on the flannel backgrounds, they made the stories come alive. And I remember this was a flannel graph story. It's a great story. It was the story of the Apostle Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail, familiar to all of us. Bonds are going to be broken, but the first bond isn't a physical bond at all. It's not a chain. It's not a, it's not a jail door with a lock. It's a spiritual bond. As we've seen over the last number of weeks, some of the, some of the pressure is spiritual pressure. We're in a spiritual war. What we see with our eyes, the world around us, and how we comprehend it is just the tip of the iceberg. There is a spiritual world. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual evil in high places. And so we see a spiritual war at work. And it's encountered in the open in the city of Philippi. Just to set the stage, remember the Apostle Paul and Silas, they were visiting the churches that Paul and Barnabas had had planted on the first missionary journey. And those were all in modern-day Turkey, which in those days was called the province, the Roman province of Asia Minor. And Paul meant to stay in Asia, but it seems every road they set out on, God threw a roadblock up. It says the Holy Spirit would stop them again and again and not allow them to go where they wanted to go in Asia. And while they were wondering about this, in the night, God gave Paul a vision of a man from Europe, the Macedonian man, calling to him, come to us, we need to hear what you're saying. And so Paul, obeying that, he and Silas, they set out, And they landed in Europe. The gospel jumped from Asia to Europe. And one of the cities they went to, the first large city, was called Philippi. It was a Roman colony. Now, Roman cities outside of Italy, when they were Roman colonies, it meant they were started by the emperor. And generally, they were founded by Roman soldiers who had too many wounds and scars or were getting too old to fight in the legions. And they cashiered them out of the military. They took local wives and they founded good, strong Roman cities. Now, to succeed in a city like Philippi, first you needed to be a Roman citizen. Most of the people there were locals and they were welcome to be there and pay taxes to Rome. But Roman citizens... They paid no tax. Could you imagine what an advantage that was? They paid no taxes and everybody was trying to out-Roman the Romans themselves. This is Philippi. Their, their laws, their legal structures, it's all Roman. Though they're in northern Greece, the ancient area of Macedon, where Alexander the Great hailed from centuries before. So they're there and they've already begun the nucleus of the church of Philippi that later Paul's going to write the letter of Philippians to. And we see from that letter that this church is one that loves the Apostle Paul. He loves them and he has such wonderful supportive relationship with them throughout the remaining years of his ministry. <clears throat> What's already happened is Paul has found the uh, the women of faith, the Jewish women or the God-fears praying down by the river. There weren't enough Jewish men in the city to have a synagogue. It takes 10 Jewish men over the age of bar mitzvah, 10 men to form a synagogue. 
They didn't have a synagogue. So there's not even 10 Jewish men in the city. It's a Roman city. So Paul goes down by the river because if the Jews don't have a synagogue, he knows that they meet by flowing water on the Sabbath to have their prayer time. So that's where he goes and he finds God-fearing people there. He shares the good news and one of them, Lydia, the seller of purple, she gives her heart to Jesus and becomes a believer. And so the church is starting to form. And then... Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Acts, because this is one of the we passages, three times in the book of Acts, Luke uses phrases like, we went here, we did this, which meant that he was with Paul in those sections. Luke himself, a physician, may actually have come from the area or the city itself of Philippi, because whenever anything has to do with Philippi, Luke is always on the scene in the book of Acts. So we pick up the story, the church is forming, Paul is ministering, they're active in the city, and we come to Acts chapter 16, verse 16. We'll begin reading there. Once, when we, there's the we passage, once when we were going to the place of prayer, that's down by the river, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. The girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and he said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. The woman was possessed by an unclean spirit, a demonic personage that in some way allowed her to seemingly tell the future or tell fortunes of some level. Now we know fallen angels, demonic spirits, they're not um, omniscient. They don't know all things. They don't know what's going to happen. But remember I said this physical world is, is just the tip of the iceberg. Well, these spiritual beings see much more of what's happening and they know far more than we do about what is really happening. And so when they share that through somebody, it will seem like great wisdom. And these people had this slave girl and were making money off her. Not only was she in physical bondage as she was a slave, and scholars tell us in the Roman Empire, almost four out of every 10 people you met were owned by somebody as a slave. Not all slaves were manual labor. Most of the doctors, accountants, they were part of large households. The most, uh, the most uh, highly prized slaves were well-educated Greek slaves who were your doctors, your lawyers, your accountants, people that we would think of rich professionals. In the Roman world, these people were an upper-class slave class. Hard for us to believe today. But not only was she in physical bondage, she's in spiritual bondage. Somehow she has been oppressed or openly possessed by a demonic being. Now the Apostle Paul became upset and troubled by what she was doing. Now what she said, notice this, is true. Because when confronted by God's people full of the Holy Spirit, she had to speak truth about Jesus. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. But Paul did not want 
an unclean spirit or a fortune-telling person being the one to preach about Jesus. Because out of their presence, she would once again revert to Satan's lies and people wouldn't know what was true of whatever she said. So he didn't want these words in her mouth. And finally he confronts her and he confronts the demon directly and casts it out. She's set free. You see, that bondage has been broken. She is free and this so-called gift is gone. It's gone. She's a fortune teller no more. And this was done publicly, probably right out in the open in the marketplace where many people witnessed it. And these people would know that this woman has been set free, that a spiritual encounter of power has taken place. Now, years ago, admittedly, there was much more interest in spiritual warfare in the Western church. I remember it would have been the late 1980s. I was in seminary in Edmonton, and one of the most prolific writers and teachers in the evangelical church at that time was Neil T. Anderson out of Minnesota. Uh, he was part of, uh, the, I think originally he was part of the Baptist General Conference, the Swedish Baptist, which was a church we attended at the time. Very popular teacher. He was popular because he focused on spiritual warfare. And one of his important books, his foundational books, was called The Bondage Breaker. God being able to break bonds and spiritual warfare. Good book, very good. Now, we were interested in that, and as young pastors in training, we wanted to know what to do if we were ever confronted with a demonic situation, as many of us have been throughout our ministry. And so we were fortunate to have an expert in our thinking attending school with us. His name was Alfred. Now, Alfred wasn't your normal student in Edmonton Seminary in the 1980s. His name was Alfred Bumu. And Alfred was not only a veteran pastor, he was a denominational leader of the Cameroon Baptist Convention, and he had come all the way to Canada for his seminary training. He wanted training because he had been in ministry for decades. Now, Alfred, a pastor from Africa, oh, we knew he must have stories about demonic possession and power encounters. And we were excited to hear his stories. And we were in a class, believe it or not, it was a class taught by Dr. Sidney Page, and it was on biblical demonology. Well, there you go. Alfred, lay your stories on us. We were so excited. And I never forget the class. Alfred is there. And Alfred, he wasn't the tallest man. He was a little shorter than us. But he always came, especially in winter, he always wore like a sports jacket with a sweater vest underneath. He was a sharp guy, very taciturn, very quiet and polite man. Spoke beautiful English as well as his, as his native language. But just a wonderful man. And finally, the time came where Dr. Page had been teaching. And he said, Alfred... And your experience dealing with people who are of demonic oppression or possession, explain how things happen in Africa. Oh boy, we're all got our pens and we're ready to take notes and we're waiting for some exciting stories like a Hollywood movie and we're waiting for the fireworks. And Alfred, he puts his pencil down and he thinks, he says, well, he says, if somebody has a problem with the demon, 
They contact the pastor or the elders of the church. We come to them. We gather around them. We pray for them. And then we go home. We're all... We're all thinking, did we, did we miss something? <laughs> and someone puts up their hand and they said, is that it? Alfred looks at us like wondering what you mean. He, he says, oh, oh, no. Sometimes, he says, rarely the demon is very powerful. Has been troubling this person for many, many years. He says, in that case, we have to return a second time. And we pray for them. And always they're set free. <laughs> we say, well, but, 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 but Alfred, what, what, do you have to get the demon to tell you his name? I am Legion, for we are many. And, and you know, and the head's turning around. You know, we're all these terrible Hollywood images. And, and Alfred says, no, no. He says, you pray in Jesus' name. Tell the demon to depart. Greater is he that is in you. Spiritual warfare is not the glamorous Hollywood exciting horror movie nonsense that we're fed. It's straightforward. It's what Jesus is about. If the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. In fact, Jesus had to deal with that attitude that wanted to glamorize or, or overemphasize breaking the bonds of spiritual darkness. In, in Luke chapter 10, he had sent people out two by two to do ministry in his name and they came back pumped. Not only did they see people give their hearts and put their faith in God, physical healings, but the demons, like Alfred told us, they just obeyed in Jesus' name. They had to leave these people. Verse 17 of Luke 10 says, The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, this is Jesus replying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus says, don't major in the minors. This is a, this is a wonderful part it's a tool in your toolbox that greater is he that is in you. You're able to command demons to leave people alone because the Holy Spirit is within us. But Jesus says the exciting thing is that you're a child of God, that your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. That's what you should be rejoicing over. But here we see spiritual darkness driven out by the light of God's love. So that is a wonderful story. Paul did a wonderful thing for this poor, oppressed soul. But no good deed goes unpunished. This story, we go from breaking the bonds of spiritual darkness, now we see breaking the bonds of physical suffering. During prayer time, we often talk about people who are suffering, who have major health problems or upcoming surgeries that we love to pray for. But you know, there are those of us, even hearing my voice today, they have physical suffering every day. Their lives are limited by the bondage 
of physical suffering and limitation. It can be severe, chronic arthritis. They might be staying in their home today because of debilitating depression. Bondage and physical suffering, emotional suffering. It comes in so many ways. And during the time of COVID, people are suffering in ways that we wouldn't have even thought of a little over a year ago. Let's see where this suffering comes from after the deliverance of the woman. In Acts chapter 16, we pick up the story now in verse 19. It says, When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. That's where the court was, the seat of judgment. Verse 20, They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews. Remember, there's not many Jews in that town. They must not be welcome there. These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept our practice. Now, remember, they're not in Rome. They're not even in Italy. They're in backwater Macedon, but this is a Roman colony out Romaning the Romans. And so based on Roman law, these Jewish troublemakers, they want them punished. Well, really, they're just upset because they've lost the goose that lays the golden eggs, this so-called fortune-telling girl. It says, verse 22, talk about a hate crime. A mob forms here. Verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas. And the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. Talk about physical suffering. The Romans were particularly adept at inflicting pain. These were Romans that that flogged Jesus before his crucifixion. Paul talked about it last week as we saw him comparing his so-called boasting. He boasted in his sufferings how many times he had been flogged and beaten with rods from the Jews as well as the Gentiles. This is one of those severe cases. They would almost beat you to death. You would be left bloody and in such pain. And then they throw him not only in jail, but Paul and Silas were put in an inner cell, close confinement, their feet in stocks. And that wasn't just to immobilize somebody, as that picture indicates. Those stocks were made of metal and they had spikes in them. They were a torture device, as well as immobilizing the very worst of criminals. But what happens, the next verse is astounding. Verse 25 tells us, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. (laughs) It was a a service going on. They were praying, singing praise to God, and the other prisoners were hearing the good news of, from the missionaries who had been beaten and imprisoned with them. It's incredible. What allowed them to do that? To go beyond the circumstances of physical suffering that they were involved in? 
to now sing in the dark of the night. In the blackness, the dampness of their dungeon, they were singing praises. Praying to God. And if I know Paul and Silas, they were praying for their fellow prisoners, the magistrates who had beaten them. Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Singing in the night. Well, friends, this is one of the things that we want to to latch on to today. Because we've talked about God's promises and His power and His presence when you're in a time of pressure. But this is something special. I think we find this, the song in the night, the song in the midst of suffering is a theme from the Old Testament. In Psalm 42, verse 8 we read, By day the Lord directs His love. At night His song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. The song of the night, the song when sleep eludes you, when you are in pain and your heart reaches out to God, your song becomes a prayer. Well, you know from my speaking that the man in that picture is, is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the lead pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, the Prince of Preachers, a man who lived at the same time in London as, as uh, Karl Marx and debated him fiercely for the heart and soul of the nation. Though formally uneducated, there's few people with a command of the English language like Charles Spurgeon and a depth of knowledge of the human heart and experience of God, talking about that suffering and having a song in your heart, the song of the night. Spurgeon said this, Any man can sing in the day. When the cup is full, man draws inspiration from it. When wealth rolls in abundance around him, any man can praise the God who gives a plenty harvest. The difficulty is for music to swell forth when no wind is stirring. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight, but he is skillful who sings when there is not a ray of light to read by, who sings from the heart. Lay me upon the bed of languishing, and how shall I then sing God's high praises unless he himself gives me the song? No, it is not in man's power to sing when all is adverse, unless an altar coal shall touch his lips. Then, since our Maker gives songs in the night, let us wait upon Him for this music. Spurgeon is saying is that in our suffering, in the darkest night, only God can give you that song. And when you turn your heart to Him in worship, He will meet you in a profound, special, and a real way. Paul and Silas, they had a medicine for their wounds and their bloody backs that nobody could understand. The song in the night was a song of praise. On the screen I have a verse from Psalm 22, verses 1 to 3. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quoted this psalm on the cross. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry in the daytime, but you don't answer. In night season, in the night season, and am not silent. 
But you are holy, you who inhabit the praises of Israel. God dwells in the praise of his people. That word, you inhabit, is the Hebrew phrase, you abide. You don't rush through. You take a seat and you sit with us. When your heart is connecting to God in worship, you are relating to Him as you need to. He's the Most High God, the Maker of heaven and earth. He's above all. And yet He loves you so. And you are able to express your love to Him as not only your Creator God, but your, your Abba Father, your Heavenly Father. He loves you so. Paul and Silas sang a song of the night. And they were able to be above those circumstances. They were able to have joy even though there were tears in their eyes. They were able to share the good news and take their eyes off their sorry state and share with the prisoners around them. All because they learned the secret of the song of the night. It's a song of praise. Friends, how many times are you hurting and your heart turns to praise? It needs to. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing your praise. Friends, our hearts need to be tuned to respond to God, not with complaining, not with woe is me, not focusing on my sorry estate, but to praise the God in whose hands I am safe. There's so many stories in the Old Testament. One of them, I just want to touch on it briefly, is the story of the singing soldiers. <laughs> Worship makes a difference. King Jehoshaphat of the northern king, or of the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom, he was faced with an alliance of enemies too powerful for them. And so he went to the Lord. And the Lord says, I inhabit the praise of my people. And God told him, not to draw swords, to go out and worship. And that would win the battle. Well, Second Chronicles chapter 20 finishes that account, beginning in verse 20. It says, early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa, and they set out, as they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem, have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. And they went out at the head of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. Not by the military strength of the people, but by hearts of worship. Because God inhabits, takes up residence in a worshiping heart. Breaking the bonds of physical suffering. Friends, when you're sick, when you're locked up, when you've got bad news, when you're hurting, sing a song of praise. It will make powerful and a profound difference.
The last bond we see broken here is, is amazing. Breaking the bonds of sin and death. Jesus defeated our sin on the cross. He took your sin and mine upon Himself and He paid the price for it for the wages of sin was death. But on Easter morning, He broke the power of sin and death. And now through you at home, putting your faith in Jesus, what He did for you, not your own goodness because you have no goodness in God's sight. Just put your faith in what Jesus did for you. That will save you. Now, when this was taking place, Paul and Silas in the dungeon, locked up, singing, praising God and praying, something incredible happens. We finish the story in Acts chapter 16 by picking up the account in verse 26. The prisoners are listening to them. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Roman Roman colony more Roman than the Romans. And all good Romans know if you are the guard and the prisoner escapes, you pay the price the prisoners were going to pay. If they were thieves and they needed to pay a fine, you have to pay the fine. Well, he was going to take his life. No doubt that prison with the worst of the worst had people there who maybe have committed capital crimes. Their punishment was death. And so as an honorable Roman, he is now going to take his life because this miraculous prison break, apparently God opening all the doors, knocking off all the chains. And so he is going to do himself in because he is a good Roman. About to kill himself, he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights. There were no lights. They rushed in. He rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? We all have to get there, friends. That's your only hope. To get to the point to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? You've got to realize you're a sinner, that you need saving. What must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. It seems, as we often see, as also is in the case of Joseph in his, uh, with his warden in his jail, that the, the warden, the jailer, his house was attached to the prison compound. He lived there. He and his household. It could be his his blood relatives, his children, or it could be those in service to him, his broader staff and household. Paul is offering salvation through faith in Jesus to him and all of his household who would put their faith in God. And now Paul is speaking the words of the good news, the gospel to the jailer and to his house. 
says, Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, he and his all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he'd come to believe in God. He and his whole family. The only thing that can possibly give you more joy than being saved yourself and knowing Jesus is your Savior is to witness your loved ones and those close to you accepting Christ as well. Three times we see entire households hear the gospel and turn their hearts to Jesus in the book of Acts. One was Cornelius. When Peter went to preach to the Gentiles for the first time, the whole household received Jesus as their Savior. Another time, Crispus, the head of the synagogue, they were kicked out of the synagogue, Paul, and so he took Paul to his house. Paul preached and his whole household became believers and the nucleus of a brand new church. Well, here, the church has grown in Philippi. Oh, it began with a businesswoman, Lydia, the seller of purple, down by the river. And whether she put her faith in Jesus, I believe she probably did. A fortune-telling slave delivered from demonic bondage. And now a hardened Roman jailer. He goes from suicide to salvation. Incredible stories of God breaking bonds. And the final is the greatest of all. God breaking the bonds of sin and death which hold us all. Unless you have given your heart to Jesus and put your faith in Him, you are still separated from God, lost in your sin. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the bondage breaker. And it only is by faith that He can set you free. The familiar passage in Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. And I love First John chapter 5. The aged apostle of love writes this, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Friends, you don't have to guess about it. If you're here this morning or at home, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have Jesus in your heart. If you open your heart to Him in faith, turn from your sin. That's repentance. And turn to Jesus. You will be saved. And you'll be set free. For the one who Jesus sets free, you'll be free indeed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the freedom that we, your children, enjoy today.
Father, we have been adopted into your very family through faith in Jesus, the only begotten Son, for he took our sin to the cross. He paid the price. Lord, he was the Lamb of God without sin. And so, Lord, he paid the price for our sin. And now he lives forever. We serve a risen Savior. Lord, we thank you for the freedom we have. But Lord, we today realize that many of your children, Lord, willingly or knowingly, Lord, often we enter back into bondage. It might be a proud, judgmental, legalistic heart. It might be being involved in things over and over till they become a habit that's so hard to break, a besetting sin. Lord, you didn't save us to be in bondage. You set us free to love and to serve, to love God with all of our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, may your children be free today. May those who haven't met you yet, Lord, realize that Jesus is the Savior and give their hearts to you in faith. Lord, this is our prayer. Give us the song of the night. Teach us the secret of living beyond pressure and circumstances, a heart of worship. For it's in the praises of your people that the God of Israel dwells. We thank you for that truth. We pray all of this in Jesus' loving name. Amen. God bless you.